Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is Margaret McSweeney, and I'm broadcasting live from my kitchen counter, and I am so excited to introduce to you a very special guest on today's show, Tom, also known as Gastro Tommy, Tom Powers, who is a restaurateur, sommelier, wine and food expert, has a great uh, show on Web Talk Radio, and... Tom, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me, Margaret. I'm really looking forward to our episode today. Oh, well, this is fun to be talking to a foodie. (laughs) And I know our listeners will walk away with some great tips and insights into the food industry. And and before we, we go into all of those fun details, I'd just like to get to know you a little bit better. Could you tell me how you got interested in food and wine and hosting a Web Talk radio show? Sure. You know, my, my mother has been a, uh, a considerable influence in my life, and I would come home early from school and sit in the kitchen with her as she would make dinner. Uh, mm-hmm. I have two older brothers, but they were nine and ten years older than I, uh, so I really sort of grew up with my mom in the kitchen, and that's where I learned to cook. Um, my brothers at 10 years old told me that I should start to play guitar because girls like that, <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't listen. But at uh, at 16, they said, okay, well, you should start to learn about wine because they love wine and I listen. And uh, it, food and wine has been, you know, the passion of my life, uh, you know, really since I was a young man. So it, it's been with me forever. It's always come from a very familial place mm-hmm. and, and one that uh, I've always wanted to share my thoughts with, with, you know, my friends and colleagues. Oh, I love that. I can't wait to listen to your show. Uh, it's Gastro Tommy on webtalkradio.net. Tell me about the, the dishes that you would prepare with your mom in the kitchen when you were a child. I think, you know, my mother was one who, like many, was, was running the house as well as uh, making the dishes. So a lot of her food was, was very simple. You know, in the 70s in the United States, I think there was a lot of meatloaves, a lot of uh, tacos, um, spaghetti and that sort of thing mm-hmm. that were really pretty simple. And uh, we certainly did the holiday meals together. Um, but it was, you know, the things that I cook now are really quite a bit different. Mm. Um, as one who's been in the food industry for quite some time, and I, I think our American culture has changed where we focus now more on better product um, and that we, and we embrace simpler cooking techniques, if you will. That makes sense. That does. And I do want to hear more about that angle. But real quick question, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Oh, in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. So right in the hubbub of of our capital. That's that's exciting. So yeah, do you think a, in, I'm sorry? I was just going to say it was just a wonderful place to grow up. Um, you know, the 70s were a very exciting time in the city. And then to watch the country come out of the difficult times uh, in the early 1980s was was really, uh, I really felt like I was in the epicenter of what was happening in the world. And, uh, and it was just a really exciting time. Now, is Washington also considered to be um, a hub of great restaurants? You know, I think Washington has a very vibrant um, cosmopolitan exposure. Mm -hmm. And I think there are either very, very fine restaurants. And then I think it drops off dramatically. Um, certainly the country as a whole 
has seen an explosion of restaurants that are very good. Um, but I think for many people, Washington is feast or famine. Uh, I mm -hmm. think there's a, a, some very good restaurants, and I think there's a lot of just awful ones. And what would you rate as one of the best ones you really enjoy? In in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's places like Kincaid's that have always been good. Mm -hmm. uh, the Inn at Little Washington, which is actually an hour and 40 minutes out into the Virginia countryside, has been regarded as the best restaurant in, in D.C. for, you know, at least 20 years. And I, and I wow. think is, is either the best or one of the top four in the country. Um, Patrick O'Connell's been there, a brilliant chef. And, and so if I had to pick one, I think that would be my, my all-time high there. Great. So for all of those listeners planning a trip to D.C. in the, the summer, put that on your stop. Now, how did you end up in Chicago from D.C.? I had uh, I'd grown up on the East Coast. My, uh, my family had a house in Nantucket. My grandparents were from Boston. And I then went out west, and, and I felt that the Midwest was really the only part of the country that I hadn't lived in. Uh, I had a lot of friends from college that were from Chicago. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, I felt that Chicago was the most underdeveloped of the major cities for food and wine. And, and when I moved here in 91, mm -hmm. um, I saw a lot of energy, I saw a lot of excitement, I saw a lot of opportunity, um, but I, I think Chicago was about to explode, and, and I think I was right. Uh, I think Chicago went from sort of a, a distant city in the national perspective of great restaurants to you know, one of the leading cities in the country. And that is a huge accomplishment, and I would love to hear how you got involved in the restaurant business and the food industry in Chicago. Is that where it all began? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I moved here and had an introduction to a wonderful, very dynamic company called Let Us Entertain You, mm -hmm. uh, where they have, you know, some very simple kitschy concepts and they have the best of the fine dining restaurants and everything in between. Yeah. Uh, and the night before my interview, I had just come back from France, mm -hmm. uh, where I had been for uh, several weeks, I think about seven or eight weeks. And I went to have a, a meal with a, at a little restaurant in, a, in the meatpacking district. Uh, and this was long before the meatpacking district was, was cool. You know, it was still dirty and grungy and there were hookers on the corner. And I mean, it was just a, a frightening area, but a remarkably uh, engaging Italian restaurant. Huh. And the guys were just about to open a French brasserie across the street. And I walked in, it was not done yet, and I knew that's where I wanted to work. Um, so I had five interviews with them. Um, it was a great time in that the Blackhawks were still very good. Uh, Michael <laughs> Jordan was making a big impact in the NBA, and it was before they'd won any championships yet. Uh -huh. uh, and, this, and the restaurant was very close to the stadium. So I was hired uh, for $22,000 working 90 hours a week and was just as happy as could be. Uh, I was elated to have the work. It was a restaurant that just exploded. It was Marche uh, and for 19 years was, you know, one of the hottest restaurants in the country. And that's where it all began. That's where it all began. I had uh, the great fortune of working with a gentleman, uh, Michael Cornick, who was, you know, my mentor, mm -hmm. uh, a brilliant chef, a very good wine guy, uh, really understand service, and and at that time, had the had the wherewithal to really spend 
a lot of, of time and energy with the staff training us. And, and were it not for his drive um, and, and, the, and the experience that I gathered from him, I don't think I would have learned as much as I did as quickly as I did. Wow. And what different capacities did you, did you um, get you involved? Know, I, I came in as, as a manager and, and really mm-hmm. was just trying to help out. Um, yeah. Shortly thereafter, I became the beverage manager because I, I knew a lot about wine. Mm-hmm. And I began to read the books that he was giving me about service. And, mm-hmm. and quickly, I was able to establish a presence on the floor. But our restaurant was so prolific. Um, we were, and we were just doing a horrible job managing the door. So I came back after about six months, and, and they asked me to run the door. We brought a number of people in who had just failed miserably uh, because it was mm-hmm. such a high-profile place. And so many requests from, you know, important people that, that we just didn't know how to handle the volume of business. And, and I was able to figure that out pretty quickly. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll tell you an interesting story about it. I blocked yeah. off the 8 and 8.30 time slots uh, on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. And we never took reservations then. And what that did was enabled me to to provide for the very good friends of the restaurant to right. accommodate the guests from the great hotels and for any celebrities who might walk in because eight and eight thirty was the time that everyone wanted. Uh-huh. Um, so if I, if I was really busy, I just wouldn't take anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but in most cases, what it did is it, it enabled me to catch up and it enabled me to accommodate the people that were coming in. And that was literally the secret to my success. Um, at that point, the owners thought I was a really smart guy. The hotels liked me a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the staff liked the fact that, that there was a better flow to the restaurant. Um, and and so that was really what, what sort of kicked it off. And I became the GM shortly thereafter. And about two years after that, uh, Cornick came to me and said, you know, you're, you're ready. Go do your own. I know that you've always wanted to. So go ahead and open your own restaurant. And I did. And, um, and I, well, had a, I had a place called Harvest on Huron for about six years. And we, we had a great run. We got Best New Restaurant. Uh, from the Chicago Tribune in 97. Mm-hmm. Um, we were we were in you know every publication. We were very fortunate. We had a very good run of business, really right up until the planes hit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and literally overnight, my business changed. I had a lot of consumers coming in from uh, the Wall Street firms right. and from the advertising firms, and, and those dried up literally overnight. And at that point, we had to recreate ourselves. And, and it, it just never felt the same for what we were doing. Unfortunately, the partners started fighting. Um, we were working very hard and not making the money that, that we might have. And I think we lost focus of what we were, what had made us most successful. Um, and and so after a couple of years, uh, we were doing okay. But uh, my the chef came to me and said, you know, I've got an investor and I'm ready to do the whole thing and we don't need you. And, hmm. uh, and so I was able to get out of the restaurant. And, um, wow. you know, that was, uh, it was a relief to me at that point. I was, you know, ready for a heart attack at any point at about uh, 35 years old. Um, wow. That is a stressful business. Yeah. But, you know, I, I loved it. It was, it was wonderful. I went back and consulted with the original group. Uh, and then stayed on with them. I then worked with uh, Champagne Vuclico for two wonderful years. Uh, a great group of people, a beautiful product. And then a, a very dear friend of mine, Sergio Esposito, 
owns the Italian wine merchants in New York City, and he brought me in to help with some of the high net worth uh, clients that he had and to help grow the business, which I, I did for a bit. But I knew that I wanted to get back in and own my own project again and right. was just looking for the, the right time, the right opportunity, and the right expression of that. And oh. that's what's led me to Gastro Tommy. So, you know, food and wine has always been my life uh, professionally, and it, it's something that I've really enjoyed uh, being able to share my passion with other people. And it's a perfect pairing. <laughs> so yeah, food and wine, no, that's yeah. great. Now, at um, your restaurant, the Harvest on Huron, what type yeah. of food did you focus on? What was your philosophy? What was the objective? Well, I think what we did best was to really embrace what was fresh in the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, our chef, Alan Sternweiler, was a uh, an avid hunter, and so we always had quite a bit of game and fresh fish on the menu. So I think it was uh, very much a Midwestern feel with certain international techniques. You know, there was a little bit of, of perhaps a Japanese influence. Alan was German, uh, so you would see some spetzel on the menu. Uh, he was classically trained as a French chef, so there was a lot of very traditional expressions. Uh, but the menu changed all the time. And, and it was something that, you know, what people enjoyed, there were a few staples on the menu that never changed. And, and I would those? say that was about 40% of the menu and the other 60% would change all the time. And what were the staples? Well, let's see. We had a, uh, a salmon that was rolled uh, and had a little bit of a, um, a wasabi piece to it and a little bit of mm-hmm. a, uh, a soy glaze. Uh, we had what we call oysters, which were oysters Rockefeller done with a, um, a little bit of a uh, chorizo in the sauce. So it gave it a little bit of a Mexican flair. Um, Alan was a master, I should say is a master uh, of venison. Mm. So in the fall and winter, we'd have the red tail venison, which you could change the prep on. Uh, he had a, a rabbit tenderloin that had rabbit sausage in the center, and then a little bit of a, uh, a curried uh, carrot sauce with that so those were some of the the things we always had wow now would he create the dish or would you sit down and give your input how how you know it was it was interesting he did uh the probably the first two menus on his own and Mm. and really with not a whole lot of input from us at all and as we went forward i really pushed him to continue changing the menu um, because I, I saw some of our colleagues like Paul Kahan from Blackbird, uh, Kerry Nahabedian from Naha, Michael Cornick at MK, who I thought were really pushing um, and, were, and were constantly sourcing better product, constantly updating their menus. And, and so I would sort of push him along and say, okay, you know, it's time for a change. Here, give me a protein. And then, and then literally what Alan and I would do is go for a long drive. Uh, where we'd typically be doing a special event somewhere, and we would rewrite the menus as we were driving along, and then he would go in the kitchen with his team and and start to work on the dishes. And my palate had gotten developed enough through the wine application that I was able to understand the harmony of ingredients and had had been looking very seriously at food for about 10 years at that point. Um, And we had some really good guys in the kitchen with Alan uh, that were able to weigh in, and, and to his credit, he was very secure in letting other people contribute to the food, mm-hmm. um, but also was bright enough to have the oversight to bring it all to, you know, all these other different influences uh, to create his own dishes. And, and so it was very much a collaborative effort towards the end. 
Oh, that's great. Now, what was the most memorable dish that he prepared that that just really haunts you? You know, I'm, I'm, way. <laughs> I, I think the best dish that we did was actually a dish that I stole from a Thanksgiving dinner that I went to years ago. Um, one of my father's partners uh, in Washington, D.C. was a real foodie and did a, a glorious Thanksgiving dinner where he invited the best chefs in D.C. from different restaurants to come in. And, and so we blatantly stole one of these guys' dishes. So we took <laughs> a small pumpkin and hollowed it out. And we then took the insides of the pumpkin and made a pumpkin sauce with it that we tossed fettuccine with. And wow. then in that, we put a lobster tail. Um, and it, it was probably, it is still one of the best dishes I've ever had. Wow. Um, and what made that so harmonious? Because you talked before about it, the sh- harmony, oh, sure. harmony of taste you know, and everything. What made that work? Well, I think there's a few things. I mean, one is that there is a richness that's inherent to lobster. And so it brings up a similar texture to properly cooked pasta. Um, I think the pumpkin had a wonderful seasoning flavor to it. Uh, it was unique that you didn't typically see pasta pumpkin dishes at the time. And then to do something as outrageous as put lobster in it, uh, I think really created a, a, a flair for people. Um, you know, we did these in a miniature version. Um, this one that we saw at Thanksgiving was actually done in an enormous pumpkin where they used the lid to keep the dish warm. So you'd literally pull the pumpkin top off and it was stuffed with all different, you know, there was, the lobster was cut up into smaller pieces. Alan made it more elegant and more of a personal appeal. And he certainly seasoned the inside of the pumpkin as well. I mean, it was actually, you know, pumpkin and squash, so you could eat the whole thing. Uh, And he would season it with like a little bit of butter, a little bit of cinnamon, uh, a touch of clove, and it was just, just Mm -hmm. glorious. Oh, that that just sounds fabulous. And what did you call the yeah. dish? Did it have a special name? Well, no, it was, you know, we, we didn't get into a lot of uh, fancy names for our dishes, so we would okay. literally just describe them. So it was, you know, a seasonal pumpkin uh, stuffed with lobster, fettuccine, and lobster. Wow. Okay. I mean, do you see a trend in terms of some people giving these elegant, names to dishes i mean what what do you see as the trend in terms of of names yeah i think i think you have people who fall into two schools and and you have some chefs that are that are very clever and very witty with the english language and they're able to use metaphors and similes and alliteration to to create names that are catchy um, and then I think you have other people that are very literal and, and, th- and find that to be sort of silly and whimsical, and, and so they move away from it. Right. So I do think what you can say is that there are either one side of the fence or the other. Uh, I would say there's probably more representation in the less creative side because many of these guys don't have a great command of the English language. They're, they're great chefs. They're wonderful mm-hmm. technicians, but, but the command of the English language isn't necessarily their forte. Uh, other guys, however, are wildly creative and really get it and have fun with it. And I think they understand the whole of the marketing side, uh, the impact that the language can have in creating something that's more memorable. So there's, there's, I think, two very distinct camps there. That's interesting to know. Now, which chefs, besides your mom, of course, have really yeah. had the most influence on you, culinary-wise? Um, 
Yeah, I think there's I think there's a few. I mean, one is um, certainly Rick Bayless, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Rick is an icon here in Chicago. He is a self-taught chef who has you know opened and and maintained what may be the best Mexican restaurant in the United States for over 20 years. Right. Um, he is in his restaurant Tuesday through Saturday every week. Um, he's had the opportunity to open all over the country and all over the world and has not done so. Um, he, he's and smart enough. Why do you enough. think that is? Why do you think he has Well, because I think he understands that in order to really run successful restaurants, you have to be in them. Um, there are other people who lend their name to restaurants in an effort to make money, uh, but they rarely continue to have the focus and the drive that they mm-hmm. did in the original space. And so it becomes a, a challenge to what degree are you willing to compromise your integrity uh, for financial success? And, and you know, that's, that's a very harsh statement. Um, there are a few people who are able to do that more successfully than others. But I think for Rick, it was so important that he maintain the familial feel within the core restaurant group, the right. people who work there. Uh, and then he continued to provide the best dining experience to his consumers that he possibly could. And that mm-hmm. was more important to him than making a buck. That's great. So, okay. you know, I think he's certainly among the most important. I think the other is Mario Batali. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Mario came on like a hurricane. I think he has introduced the United States to Italian food at a very, very high level. But mm-hmm. the other thing and why I think he's so important is not because he's got a lot of commercials and TV shows and a, and a cooking line, but because yeah. you can open up a Mario Vitale cookbook and make any dish in them. Mario has made cooking available to all of us. And while there are some experts that would, you know, that just hate uh, to think that anyone can cook their dishes, Mario understands that, you know, we should all eat and drink well and enables us to do that. And I love that philosophy because it can be so right. intimidating as one who is, I guess, culinarily challenged, uh, you know, to, to open a book and, and, and not know the techniques. And, and that's so refreshing to be able to know that there are those chefs, those really good chefs, excellent chefs, who want to reach out and to teach and bring others along and bring everyone into the kitchen. Where it's yeah. what, what it's all about anyway, in terms of the the friendship and the fellowship and and the food. Absolutely, I mean, I think that's really what it's about. Is it's about sharing with family and friends, yeah. and and hopefully, food and wine is void of uh, pretension. But uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. Right, and it's been getting a lot of exposure, of course, with Food Network, uh, Food Channel, all of that. Um, do you see that as a positive, a negative, or not concerned. I I think there are. It, it's great that people are really enjoying food and wine at a, at a high level, and I think that's great. I think what's unfortunate is when TV gets a hold of it, they bastardize it and turn it into something silly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the cooking shows are are just ridiculous. Um, there are a few of them that are very good, but most of them are are just awful. And I think um, what it also has done is that it's elevated some people to this rock star status, uh, whereas there are other people who are very talented and maybe even more talented who don't get any attention. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think there's an unnatural separation of success to, to unawareness 
that un- unfortunately the the media has not done a good job with. Um, the media is obsessed with young and tattooed and pierced um, and not passionate about knowledgeable, experienced, tried and true. Hmm. And so one of the, the founding principles of, of gastrotomy was to give the consumer an inside perspective to the people that really do make a difference. Um, if I see another 24-year-old executive chef with tattoos on the cover <laughs> of Food & Wine magazine, I'm going to hurl. Um, I mean, it's, it's just awful. Um, I, I'd, I'd much rather, you know, Thomas Keller is one of the great American chefs, yeah. uh, great chefs in the world, and he's still trying to perfect the roasted chicken. That tells you a lot about his humility, his focus, uh, and his understanding that his craft has never been mastered. Um, and, and, and when I see these young kids coming out and, and saying, you know, I'm going to reinvent Nouvelle French cuisine or, you know, classic American dining, I, I just, I, it makes me sick. Hmm. Yeah, that is, that's very, very insightful. Now, what are some of the magazines that you enjoy reading online and um, yeah. so hard copies? What are what are some? I of think Savour is the best uh, that's out there. It's S A V E U R, and I think they do a very good job of of bridging um, an entry level understanding to someone who's more sophisticated. Uh, and I think that's really the best. Um, I, as much as I rip on them, I, I do like Food and Wine magazine. Uh, okay. I think Dana Cowan right, uh, manages a beautiful magazine. Uh, I think having the power of the American Express machine behind them helps. Right. Um, but I, I think the menus are, are well-researched. They are presented in an attractive format, and they are typically written by people that are good at what they do. Uh, I just think they're, they're sometimes they it appears as though their need to sell magazines transcends their need to provide good information and and that's where i see a bit of a challenge uh i read decanter wine magazine um mm-hmm. religiously uh i started with with wine spectator which i think many of us did um but i think there there are some issues with you know the quality of their rating system but I think they have very good wine writers who introduce areas, and they do very good um, focuses on articles. Uh, but I think a lot of the content when they're scoring is just atrocious. I mean, how does how does Chateau Saint Sapage become the wine of the year uh, over Lafitte or Domaine Romani Rothschild or Krug? I mean, it's it's just an mm-hmm. absurd comment. And how does it? Well, it 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 does because it helps sell magazines. Um, it's not because it's the best wine made that year. And and I don't know how they would possibly, uh, get that rating. Although I think the fact that Chateau St. Jean has had a full page ad in the magazine for three years didn't hurt. Hmm. Oh, you you hate to think there's that correlation, don't you? (laughs) I I do, you know, and, and it's an argument that, that we'll always have, you know, where the magazines will tell us there is no, relationship between advertising and editorial. And, and I don't believe that. Um, I, I may be um, critical, and, and I'm sure that I am, uh, but, but I, I believe that there are better publications for us to gather information. You know, Bon Appetit is a great magazine and one that I, I always enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's, there's, there's things out there that are a little bit more specific to the industry, Right. Um, you know, I'll tell you the other thing that I do is I follow Twitter 
And, oh. and the reason I do is that I get a lot of good information from my colleagues there. And I'm able to really get a good understanding of uh, what's really happening, what people are talking about, what are the hot topics. Yeah. Um, and, and I find that as a, a good source of, of at least what's relevant. I don't know that right. I get as much factual information as I do what's really, what are people talking about. Right. Now, what is your Twitter uh, address? Same as all, as all, Gastro Tommy. Gastro Tommy, wonderful. Yeah. I will yeah. follow you. I am at well, Mary <laughs> So I will put you on that list. And it's so much fun. I follow um, uh, Chef Michael Taus of Zealous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Online. Yep. Yes, so impressed. Such a nice, down-to-earth person who uh, yeah, oh, he's a lovely just, guy. Yes. Oh, just very talented. And and he's on Twitter. And, and it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, to to see how he promotes the farms or the the places, the local produce providers, and and yeah, it's really good. You're right. Twitter is a great source. I'm I'm surprised there's not a collective Twitter magazine for the culinary world. Well, I think we'll see something emerging in the next uh, in the next few months. Uh, there's a new project that I became aware of that I think is going to really take the world by storm. But. Uh, We'll leave that for another day. Oh, I can't wait. You have uh, put a little appetizer there, a little amuse-bouche no. <laughs> for the listeners here. That is exciting. Now, tell me, if you would, about your involvement in wine. And have you studied? I, I understand you're a sommelier. What, what goes into becoming a wine expert? I'll tell you, there's a, there's a few things. And, and I've helped a lot of people really get started in their career. Mm-hmm. And one thing is to understand the difference between tasting and drinking. You know, drinking is something we do for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, critically evaluating a wine is a different process. And it requires that we remove whether we like a wine or not from, from our ability to break it apart. And so that process is one that is very structured, um, and it requires a lot of study. Um, I, I'd love to tell you that it's that it's all fun, but it's not. Right. Um, one thing is that it's helpful for people to taste with very good people so they can learn the proper way to taste. Right. Uh, I think the, the other critical thing is that they start with a good reference book. And, and so, you know, I've always recommended um, Kevin Zorali's Windows on the World Complete Wine Course as a beautiful oh. beginning book for people. Yeah. Um, the Culinary Institute of America has another book, which is their textbook called Exploring Wine, which is a little bit more expensive, but absolutely beautifully written. And then if you're serious and you, and you want to become a sommelier, uh, there's the Hugh Johnson's, um, I'm sorry, it's the Tom Stevenson Sotheby's Encyclopedia of Wine. And, and that's, that is the go-to reference book uh, for the sommeliers. That's what we read. It's what we study. Uh, and that understanding will really help you get through sort of the um, the first two levels of the sommelier process and, and into the third. Um, at some point, it, it requires uh, that you're tasting a lot. And, and I think if you're not fortunate to do that, if you're not in the business or you're not a part of a, a very disciplined and focused wine group, uh, you just can't keep up. Uh, it's right. too expensive. Mm-hmm. And it and it's uh, it's something that enables you to to stay fresh and to keep your palate sharp. Um, most people who are serious in the business now are mentored by people who have made it through the master sommelier process. 
And uh, I think it's something that, that's helpful so that you can have someone guide you and you can find out if you really have the palate or not. Ultimately, you will become a master sommelier, not only because you've done 10 years of a very serious study, um, but also because you've had a palate that has been trained. And, and some are able to do it faster than that. I think 10 is, is a good, uh, reasonable amount of time that most people need. You know, some have done it in four. Uh, but they're very unusual and very special people. Hmm. Now, what are some of the established wines that that you will always order and recommend? You know, I would I would start with uh, champagne, um, as as I think it's a great place to start a meal. Mm-hmm. And I think the you know Vuflico Yellow Label has positioned itself as a luxury brand, as one that a lot of people know and like and trust. And and so I would I would say you know for for people who want to spend a little bit of money, uh, and I shouldn't say a little for people who want to spend some money and really make a great impression, that's a good place to start. Um, but if if people want value, then I would say to look for other sparkling wines from around the world, whether those are from Italy or from Spain uh, or even here in the United States. And and you know something in the United States like Argyle or Gruet from New Mexico uh, are very good wines. Uh, For white wines, I I think people ran away from Chardonnay because a a lot of people were making bad product in California and Mm -hmm. tried to jump on the playing field to make money and and did so unsuccessfully. But we produce spectacular Chardonnay in the United States. And and I think people need to go back to giving it a chance uh, and drink it. Outside of that, uh, I think Alsace in, in France probably makes some of the best white wines that are at all different price points that people could enjoy. And and then if we get into reds just quickly, mm-hmm. you know, I think Pinot Noirs have finally caught on, and I'm delighted about that. Uh, people should understand that there are a lot of very bad Pinot Noir producers and more and more entering the playing field all the time. Uh, so I look to people like uh, Aubin Clément, in Santa Barbara for making beautiful product for over 25 years. Uh, and then, you know, I think there are countries that are worth um, discovering, you know, the wines that are coming out of Italy, Spain, Chile, Argentina mm-hmm. uh, are glorious and we can find some very good value there. So, right. um, you know, I would say, you know, things like the Catena project in, uh, in Australia, per, I'm sorry, in Argentina provides very good value. Uh, I think the region uh, of the Rhone in France is is still not really understood to the degree that it it should be or appreciated. Um, And and then I think, you know, for one last thought, you know, I think that Syrah has really gotten a bad rap um, because of a lot of what people were drinking, these Australian Shiraz that had huge extractions of of alcohol and, and fruit and oak. And we're charging unfair prices, but there are very good producers both here in the United States, like Coupe, for example, hmm. um, or uh, or a lot of good value coming out of the Rhone, as I said in France. Great. And, and, and you offer some wines, right? Is that right? Do you have a subscription service? That... Well, what I what I do is I promote people that I think are good. Um, okay. You know, I don't make any money on those transactions. I'm not I'm not selling product on my site. Uh, I work with Sergio Esposito, my friend from the Italian wine merchants, mm-hmm. and he does a world of wine with a particular focus on Italy, but offers the great wines from all over the world. 
And, and I think he has the best store. He's got every client has a assigned portfolio manager, someone to help wow. you make the right selections on your wine. And I think that's the right way to, to go forward. Um, what I try to do is highlight other producers that I like a lot. Um, and, and I try to refer my audience to the people that I think make great wine. And, and I do it because I love it, not because I'm trying to make a nickel. Right. What is the favorite vineyard of yours that you've visited and walked through and sampled? You know, I, I will say, I, I'll tell you one that I've been to and one that I'm, I hope to go to. Okay. Um, in Burgundy, I was fortunate to go to the Domaine Romani Conti, which in many people's estimation is the finest, um, certainly house in Burgundy and, mm-hmm. and for some people in the world. Uh, it, they make a very small amount of wine at a very, very high level and have for quite some time. And I'm, I'm very impressed with, with everything that they do. And Burgundy's always had a very special place in my heart. Um, hmm. There is a, a gentleman. Well, it just because Burgundy has great complexity. It's very elegant. Um, and it's very unpredictable. Um, hmm. and, and I think it, it, it causes you to be patient, uh, it, it, to understand what, why it's special. Um, and when it's good, it's better than anything else. There's not a lot of great Burgundy, but, but when there is, it, it, it has a unique flavor for me that I enjoy so much. Uh, but there's a, a family that produces wine in the United States, and I'm going to go see this fall. Uh, the Hirsches. And, mm-hmm. and I met Jasmine Hirsch, the daughter, uh, who's sort of in charge of sales and marketing uh, recently, and then had the, the great fortune of sitting down with her father for some time. And, and I'm going to go visit their property. And, and Dave is known as, as growing the best American Chardonnay and Pinot Noir grapes in wow. the United States. And, and that's something that I really look forward to. They're in, in- Sonoma. In Sonoma, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, right off, there. right off the coast, and uh, they're just very, very bright people that are only trying to to grow the best product that they can, but have the considerable respect and admiration of the industry because of their unique focus. Wow, and it comes down to good grapes. Essentially. It really does. And um, what you know, makes it, a great grape? Well, let's see. I think part of it is, is, and I'll give you a little bit of a breakdown. You know, people always talk about soil first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the type of dirt that it's grown in and what is the minerality. So terroir is a French term that encompasses all of these things, not only the earth, but the direction that vineyard faces, the slope of that vineyard, the relative drainage of that vineyard, and then even things as esoteric as the, the wild yeast in the wind. Uh, all of those factors uh, will influence the wine on a very significant level. But I think what's become even more important uh, is who's making the wine. Great winemakers, even in difficult years, make good wines. And bad winemakers always make bad wine. And, and so I think not only where, but who is more important. Okay. Like the chef of grapes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's, yeah. it's a very similar approach, and that's why I think we see such great friendships between great winemakers and great chefs is that they work. They both understand that without great raw materials, mm-hmm. you're not going to make extraordinary product. 
That is so true. Is there any chef out there that you would just love to go into the kitchen and, and cook a meal with? I'll give you two, um, you know, and, and I talked a little bit about both of them, but Thomas Keller, uh, mm-hmm. I think, is an American treasure. Uh, he owns the French Laundry in Napa and Per Se in New York, and then a series of other restaurants, Ad Hoc and uh, uh, what is his, uh, Bouchon. Um, and, and I think he, at whatever level he's cooking at, he does it beautifully. He also has helped mentor many, many very good chefs. And despite his considerable success, he remains very humble. And so he would be one. Uh, the other would be Patrick O'Connell from the Inn at Little Washington, who is uh, eccentric, um, really makes extraordinary dishes. Uh, and so those, if I, if I had to pick one, I, it w- I would be at a loss. So, but either of the, those two gentlemen would be a delight. Oh, that does sound fun. And any good books about cooking or uh, not necessarily cookbooks, but just chef Yeah, I'll give you my anything? favorite one. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a wonderful gentleman named uh, Jim Harrison who's written some great American novels but also has a, a book called The Raw and the Uncooked. Oh. And it is a series of short stories about food and wine. And, and sometimes it's outrageous. Sometimes he's drinking to excess. Uh, and eating to excess, but other times he's he's just uh, he's one of the great writers in the United States, and and I think has written the the most fun book about food and wine that I've read. So the raw and the uncooked. Pick that up. I so enjoyed, and I never can pronounce her name correctly. Ruth Reichel, Reichel, yeah, Reichel, yes, garlic and sapphires. Yeah, about- yeah, and she's a great writer. Um, who's done, I think, given us a real insight into her life through food. Yes. yes, and it all begins in the kitchen and with that camaraderie of, yeah, of learning. It, it Everything always ends up in the kitchen, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does. Oh, well, that's great. Now, what about uh, this summer? Uh, well, well, I guess, do you enjoy cooking? I haven't even asked that basic question. And, and what is I your do. favorite dish I, to prepare? I just love it. It's, um, oh. you know, I... We made sure with our house that there's a, a big room attached to the kitchen because it's where everyone congregates, which is yeah. you know the premise of your show. Right. Um, you know, it is all about the kitchen. It's where life's lessons are are shared, and and the stories and the joy and the and the sadness of our lives is is communicated. And I, I think it is the 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 lifeblood of of a home. You know, it's it's where everything happens. Mm-hmm. It and, truly is. Yeah, I, I love cooking. Um, it's something that I do with varying degrees of success, uh, <laughs> despite having done it for some time. I, I recognize that I'm still highly flawed and trying to get better. Oh, now what is your favorite uh, piece de resistance that you prepare? You know, I, I thought about it a little bit, and, and I'll tell you that there's one dish that I make that I think is always a big hit, and again, when, you know, when someone asked Keller what you wanted to master and, you know, he didn't come up with, with molecular gastronomy. He talked about a great roasted chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is, is, a, is a chicken pot pie. Um, oh. I found it in a old book called Sunday Suppers. Oh. And I've adapted it a little bit, but it is, it's, it's about two and a half hours to make. Oh. Um, it, it does take time. 
Uh, I tend to make two of them at a time when I make them just because there's so much work that goes into them. Sure. Um, but it is, it's, it's a, it's a home run every time I make it and people are absolutely floored how good it is. And the nice thing is there's so many vegetables in it as well, that it's, it's the only thing you need. Um, and, and you know what, I will, I will photocopy this for you and email oh, it to you so you can oh. share it with your audience. Oh, um, that sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. And but it this, just, they describe it as upper crust chicken pot pie. Uh, <laughs> I don't know to what degree it's upper crust, but it's, uh, it's just a really good, good, good recipe that I've had a lot of fun with over the years. I guess it's a ritzy chicken dish, huh? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I, I think what it is, you know, and, and most chicken pot pies have a terrible sauce. Um, mm, yeah. There may, you might get one or two vegetables in it and that's about it. This has some herbs in it. So that it's the seasoning of this that oh, really yeah. makes a big difference. And the other thing is that you use thigh meat. Um, m- most people oh. are trying to cook with breasts. Right. And right. Uh, there's just no flavor in a breast. Um, you know, Americans are so obsessed with boneless, skinless chicken breasts, right. and they, they just have no flavor. Um, chefs, you know, understand to use the darker meats because there's more flavor in them. Right, right. And sometimes the the darkness has the most light. That's right. It's exactly right. <laughs> and what do you think uh, besides the the dark meat is is the secret seasoning to that dish? Well, I think the tarragon makes a big difference. Oh. Uh, there's a little bit of fresh parsley, and, and I think those are the two critical things. The other is that the better the quality of chicken stock that you use, the better the dish will come out. Um, I think it's, you know, it's unfortunate that Americans don't make their own stock and freeze it. Um, it it's something that you can find in stores. Mm-hmm. and But, you know, what most people are buying is this, you know, Swanson stuff in a can that's just awful. Um, it mainly just tastes like salt. Hmm. You know, I think uh, Wolfgang Puck has a line of uh, of stocks out now that you can find in good stores. And I think that's really great stuff if, if you're going to buy something and not make it yourself. Right, right. I have tried his. That's, uh, yeah, the and it's great. And, and I yeah. use a lot of vegetable because both of my daughters are vegetarian. Absolutely. And then that's a, uh, you know, it's what we're looking for is a, is a flavor component. The other thing that I find more than anything is that people under season, um, you know, mm-hmm. if, if people really understood what chefs were doing to the food to get the flavors, it, mm-hmm. someone was asked, I think it was Paul Bacuse, uh, what's the secret to your cooking? And he said, no, there isn't a secret. I use butter, salt, and pepper. <laughs> and, and the point he was making is that those three components will make a dish great if you use them in the right amounts and most people under season, um, it, it really requires that you, that you understand what's necessary and not only that you season, but when you season, um, a lot of dishes are, are sort of seasoned early on and then they're never re-seasoned. And, and a lot of that, those components you lose in the cooking process. Uh, some chefs really don't season very much until the end. And then they'll finish a dish with, you know, spectacular olive oil or a little bit of coarse sea salt, and that can make all the difference in the world. Wow. It's all about timing and seasoning and patience <laughs> and great recipes. Absolutely. Oh, this, 
this has just been an incredible learning experience. And I, I just really look forward to following you on Twitter at Gastro Tommy. And also I encourage uh, the listeners to follow you on Twitter and to go to webtalkradio.net and listen to your podcast. Uh, who have you recently interviewed that might be of interest? Well, let's see. I talked to uh, Michael Lee, who is a great mixologist down in South Beach, Florida, who did our summer cocktails, and that was quite a bit of fun. I, I've i talked with a sommelier friend of mine here in Chicago when we looked at uh, at summer wines, which was Robert Hood, and Robert has a couple different distributorships, and I, I thought he was really special. And then an old very dear friend of mine, actually, she's not old, I am, uh, Heather Nowart, who does the morning news for Fox in New York City. Uh, she does the morning drive time show. And and I think Heather really brought uh, a perspective for our 4th of July seg- segment to, you know, how does a mother of, of two little boys uh, who has three dogs, whose husband works all the time, make for a fun 4th of July? And And so we try to bring in different people with different levels of understanding of our industry yeah. uh, to keep it fun. And, and, you know, I think moms are, are the glue to the family. Uh, they have such a critical influence in our culinary lives. And so I always want to be sensitive to the great moms that are out there. Oh, and that, those are just words that are near and dear to my heart. And <laughs> Thank you for passing that on, and uh, it inspires me to to have more courage as I walk into the kitchen to try that next recipe. <laughs> well, good. Well, I wish you all the best with your show. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure to chat with you, Margaret, and I wish oh, you all the best. Thank you so much, Tommy, and I've, everyone, check out at Gastro Tommy and uh, listen to him on webtalkradio.net the Gastro Tommy Show. And thank you, everyone, for spending some time in the kitchen with me today as we visited with Gastro Tommy, a.k.a. Tom Powers, and his wonderful insights into wine and food and what goes into building a restaurant, as well as a great chicken pot pie. I encourage you to be in touch with me. Please visit Kitchen Chat and my website, uh, margaretmcsweeney.com. I'd love to hear from you listeners and and uh, here are some recipes that you've recently tried. So enjoy the, the day, savor the day, and this time with family and friends. All the best.